Greetings and welcome to the Fisk Community Show. We are a group of internet randos brought together by a shared appreciation for lively discussion, considerate disagreements, and irreverent humor. Follow us on Twitter at Fifth Community. Find fellow seditionists by using the hashtag Fifthem, and follow the Fifthem Club on Clubhouse. And as always, in the words of Camille Foster, be brave, call bullshit. So, uh, this is the fifth column community podcast. That's, you know, community run today. It's me, Ben Price. You guys have heard me before and I'm with the guy I actually served with, uh, his name's Adrian Bonenberger. He is a writer and comms expert. Uh, he's published two books, Afghan post and the disappointed soldier and other war stories for more. And I'll talk about that one a little bit as I read that one. Uh, he and I served together in the 173rd Airborne Brigade. Uh, he and I both know First Sergeant Randy Collins, which I'm sure the jokes will come. Uh, he also is in 10th Mountain. Uh, he co-founded and co-edits The Wrath-Bearing Tree, which if you want to follow something on Twitter, it's pretty good and funny. There you go. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Deadspin, Foreign Policy, Forbes, the New Republic Vice, and many other places. I think I saw something on Al Jazeera once. And... Uh, he uh, covered Ukraine as a freelancer from 2015 to 2017. And as I re recall, you actually were there militarily for a while, too. Never there met militarily. As a NATO exchange? Okay. No. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's the intro, folks. Uh, we're going to dive right into it since, you know, apparently there's a chance Putin's already invaded. Like, he's actually invaded, but maybe he'll go take even more. So, um uh, basically, Adrian, do you want to do like a basic, like what exactly is happening in the eastern half of Ukraine? First of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's great to reconnect and uh, cool to chat. It's been fun to interact with you on Twitter. Uh, it has a lot of downsides, but one of the cool things about it is that, you know, occasionally you get to get back in touch with, um, you know, people that you served with or people from other uh, chapters in your life. Um, What's going on in the east of Ukraine? The long and the short of it is for a long time, Putin was maintaining a fiction that the DNR and the LNR, the Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republic were these sort of self-sustaining um, independence movements analogous to like civil war. You know, there are these Republican enclaves and they wanted to be free from Ukraine, but they did not want to be a part of Russia. Um, and he has recently dispensed with that pretense. And I think most of the analysis that I've seen believes that he's this is a, a, a jumping off point to something bigger and more because there aren't a lot of reasons. He hasn't gained a lot by just by annexing these pieces of territory. He took most of the valuable stuff out of it in 2014, 2015. It's mostly like dilapidated factories, a little bit of like anthracite coal, which is a useful coal for like metrology. But other than that, I mean, it's just, there's not a lot there. Um, so yeah, so now that territory is Russia, which is going to be interesting because for eight years, people have been talking about 
it in terms of uncontrolled territory or separatist controlled territory. Um, and like, like Minsk is over now, like Min Minsk, the Minsk one and Minsk two uh, agreements are, are done. They don't exist anymore because there's no basis for them to be, to, to, to be considered. So right now Ukraine is facing Russia, you know, right across the border that Russia considers its territorial border and Ukraine considers, well, it's not clear. Um, and that's where we are. Yeah. And uh, Crimea is actually separate from those two regions. You, you, so, I mean, and, and I guess we should like historical context, you know, the, the English and the Russians fought a pretty bloody battle over the Crimean Peninsula in the 19th century. So that's the, that, that I think is Putin's historical claim to it. And that's, is that right? I mean, is that kind of they're they don't view it as Ukrainian. It never should have been a part of Ukraine. It was given to them when they were part of the Warsaw Pact countries in 53, 54, something like that. Might have been 59. 59, but it's Khrushchev, right? It would have been after Stalin, you're right. So so something like that. So they don't even think of it. And I do does does that region think of itself as Ukrainian or is like, no, we're Russian and they're they agree. Because I mean I think something I would point out is that if, if that's the case, then Putin might have a point, right? Like when Argentina went after the Falklands, yeah, they weren't like, we're Argentinian, we're British kind of a thing. Is that about accurate for the Crimea in particular? For Crimea specifically, it's, um, you know, when, when Putin is talking about having some type of, um, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess you could call it like an ethno-nationalist reason. Yeah. for going in there like crimea has a massive naval base the uh russian naval base yeah. in sevastopol yeah. and it's sort of like fort benning or fort bragg and like everybody around not everybody but almost everybody around that you know that naval base is former russian naval you know they they have a career there and they retire there there's like a ton of veterans specifically of the russian military uh -huh. it's a very russian place uh, I still don't think, you know, he was justified in invading and annexing it because that's not supposed to, you know, the, the last time we let foreign relations happen that way, you know, in the 20th century, we had giant world wars and maybe we're going to see a world war soon. But of the places that he has gone in, in Ukraine, like Crimea is definitely the place where there really were a lot of people who were like, we're not part of Ukraine, we're Russian, Okay, uh, for better or for worse. No, and, and I'm not trying to, you know, make... Putin excuses or Putin apologists, but I, I just want to make sure people are clear on this because I think it'll all come back around when we kind of get to the Dnipro and how this could shake out um, for everything. Um, because, like, you know, he takes Crimea first. This happens in 2012, right after the Olympics. He seems to have an Olympic fetish. 2014. All right. Uh, so 2014, so he takes it. Um, and then we had this basic steady state of, of kind of just uh, one, I don't even know what to call it, just uh, antagonism uh, between Ukraine and Russia. And now he's officially annexed two other parts of it um, that I'm not familiar with. And I guess the question is, um, you know, how far do you think uh, the Russians want into that territory? Like, forget what they can legitimately claim. What do they want out of the deal? And I guess that's the million-dollar question that everybody asks everyone on this kind of thing. Yeah, Putin in his speech, uh, both in his speech and in a piece that he wrote in the summer of uh, last year, um, talks a lot about how Ukraine 
is an invented country. Not a state. Yeah. It's not a state. Russia created it in 1917. Lenin created it specifically. Um, a lot of weird, like kind of fuzzy history. He he like looks at different things. My take on this is I, I, I don't think I think most Russians probably don't want to take Ukraine. I think most Russians want to do business with Ukraine and want things to be basically normalized. I think Putin uh, is a bitter and sentimental old man who's seen the world that he knows uh, and is comfortable with change twice. The first change uh, was when the USSR fell apart. And the second change has been something he himself has been instrumental in. And he's angry and he has a lot of grievances with the United States, uh, some of them correct, some of them totally baseless. And then he has a lot of imagined grievances with Europe and he's projecting them all into Ukraine. And I personally, I think he wants to go for the whole thing. I think it only makes sense for him if he's going for the whole enchilada. That's a long answer to a short question, but I, I think when he goes in, he's going to be going for everything because otherwise it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Okay. Well, I mean, that just puts it in like stark contrast to what he did in Georgia, right? Like where he kept these two little spots and it sounds like for the most part, that's all they wanted were the two ethnic parts of their state kind of a thing. So, Thinking that, so if he wants the whole thing, um, that means crossing the Dnipro, that means taking Kiev, that means, you know, a, a, like the Russians have done this before to horrifying effect uh, for the Ukrainian people. So, like, what, I, I mean, the ethnic Ukrainians, are they become, I, I, I'm just curious, are they becoming much more like, no, like Russia can't come here? We're not going to do this. Like we've seen, we've seen this movie. We're not going to be a part of round two. Or is this becoming much more of a like a fait accompli since Russia keeps saying, "I hey, we're going to do this," and you can go. It's going to either go easy for you or it can get even worse. Is what do you think? Well, it's hard to say in part because I'm not sure ethno. I mean, it's more of an ethno linguistic argument that that Putin is making now. There's ethno nationalism for Crimea. Yeah. Which, which we talked about before a little bit, yeah. but the whole ethno-linguistic thing about like Russian speakers versus Ukrainian speakers, most Ukrainians in the center in the east of Ukraine uh, have one Russian parent or grandparent. You know, it's just not like they those two groups have been together so so Forever. long. Yeah. It's not like it's like yeah, my dad's from um, Bavaria and my mom's from I don't know Brandenburg or something. Yeah. You know, it's it's not like they don't see it like uh, this is a big problem. And most of them don't even see the language thing as a problem either. Like uh, most, and when I say most, I mean like all of my Ukrainian friends in Kyiv use Russian as their primary language. And most of them are talking about fighting the Russians. So to them, it's not an ethno-linguistic thing. And it's definitely not an ethno-nationalist thing either. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's really more of like a cultural thing. I think the big the big problem underlying everything in Russia right now is that Ukraine is turning into a European country and Russia is still, Ukraine is emerging from the 1990s in this sort of post-Soviet state into something slightly more organized, slightly less corrupt, much less centralized, much more decentralized. And Putin and the people around him see this as an existential threat to their rule. I think that's actually what it's about. And since 2014, the Ukrainian people have become progressively 
more uh, interested in fighting to preserve that because yeah. it sucks to be in a corrupt country. I mean, our country is somewhat corrupt as well. And people fucking hate it. You hate to be in a corrupt country. You hate it when people are like stealing shit from you and you can't do anything about it. The Ukrainians are like, we can do something about it. And Russians are like, we can do nothing about it. No, I mean, there's, yeah, that, that would make sense, which I, I mean, this kind of gets to kind of what doesn't the media cover? Like what or what does the mainstream media, whatever you want to call it, it, what are they missing? What's the missing pieces in the narrative that you see? The first big missing piece in the narrative is it gets back to that decentralization and anti-corruption thing. Um, people give Ukraine a lot of shit for being a very corrupt country, which it is. Um, but uh, I, I don't think they fully understand what corruption looks like in Ukraine and why it is the way it is in this. It's, it's a very differently corrupt country from say Afghanistan, where as far as I know, Afghanistan has, has corrupt it, it, Afghanistan is corrupt in a way that makes it almost unfair to describe it as corrupt because it's sort of just what, what you do. Like if what you do is pay 10% to the dude on like a contract, like the mayor, if you want to get a contract, you got to pay 10%. And it's always been that way. Is that corruption or is it like, that's just kind of how they do things over there. Yeah. It's not secret. You know, people would be upset if the mayor didn't get 10%. It's not how we do it, but that is how they do it. In Ukraine, it comes back to centralization and the fact that the USSR was a, a, a total, it was a totalitarian country under Stalin and it was centralized, like totally centralized. Totalitarian countries have to be um, because to, you know, to sort of micromanage every element of somebody's life through some mechanism, um, you need to have somebody at the top of that doing that. Like it's, it's not a bottom up. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's no. a top down thing. Yeah. And so in the USSR things, decisions flowed to and through Moscow after the beginning, the, the, the beginning was idealistic and probably the type of thing that I would have been involved in. You know, it's like they were, they were trying to empower people. And later on, it turned into something where it wasn't empowering people at all. Um, but so it was, it was a top down thing. Everything flowed to and through Moscow. Um, sometimes with good effect, oftentimes with disastrous effect. And Kiev in 1991, when Ukraine declared independence, all of the post-Soviet countries essentially emulated that system. So for the better part of 25 years, all economic decisions were flowing to and through Kiev. If you wanted to get your state budget, your oblast budget approved, you would go to the person in the Ministry of State or the president and say, hey, I want 100 million bucks for whatever, for Kharkiv Oblast. And depending on how much you were kicking back of that budget to him, you yeah. know, that was how much you were going to get for your Oblast. It was all done behind closed doors. There was never, like, like with us, the, the Congress votes on a budget and then like states get a percentage of that budget in certain, and you get to see transparently what happens. There is some corruption there, but it's not like 20 or 30% corruption. Uh, and because the decisions were all being made centrally, like people had very little agency at a local level. I don't know how things are in Oregon, but I know here in Connecticut, you pay a ton of property taxes, both on your house and on your car. And the house property taxes is what funds your municipal government. 
So like my town of Brantford, 30,000 has a budget of $120 million a year, which sounds like a flabbergasting amount. Most of it goes into the school system. Some of it goes into the roads, but $120 million a year is being raised at a town level and it's being spent at a town level. And that gives you a very different relationship to any type of politics that's happening in your backyard than if you live in a town that's like the very bottom of a giant waterfall that yeah. starts in the city of Kiev. Literal trickle down. All the money, yeah. literal trickle down. And, and so I think like it's really important for people to understand that for Ukrainians, decentralization is anti-corruption because it's accountability for people that are their neighbors versus, I don't know, some dude in fucking Kiev said this, so I guess we're not going to fix the roads this year. Um, that's a really important thing for them. And I think that's also, that's going to be key long-term if the country holds on to like the country developing, but it's also exactly the type of thing that Putin hates, you know? And that's like, that's a big threat to Putin. If people start sort of like cottoning on to the idea that they could have political autonomy on a lower level or that, financial you know, autonomy, if they, I mean, if they can you know, if you raise money without having to involve people, then you know, you don't get the, you don't get the cheese, you don't get your piece of cheese. And for a system like the Russians, it's uh, I mean, then, to be fair though, isn't that kind of the cultural thing for them too? Like, you know, since Catherine the great, that kind of kickback mentality, that kind of centralization mentality. Well, to uh, uh, long story short, no. Okay. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, Although it was in the sense of sort of the, the, the politics of that age. I mean, Catherine the, the Great, we're talking about a time when people owned people. I mean, slavery well, uh, was abolished. Dead in souls. Russia. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, that's a, it's a great, perfect example. Um, so, you know, it, it's, we're talking about different, a, a totally different relationship in a monarchy, not only a monarchy, but a monarchy in which people are owned outright um, to a sort of uh, even semi-modern or pre-modern um, governmental form. But even then, the state was so disorganized that, you know, your, your lived experience, I hate to use this term, but your lived experience of, like in a village was actually for the most part, it, assuming that you didn't have some type of feud with, you know, the, the person who owned your soul, let's say, yeah, what you could grow. You know, so if you look in history at like most feudal organizations, feudalism is very oppressive. People get upset with it. It's not sophisticated. It's exploitative. It's, it's horrible, but the government itself is so fucked up and corrupt that it's very different from like the totalitarian regime under say the Nazis on one side of the political spectrum or the USSR on the opposite yeah. side of the political spectrum where Stalin truly did have the, you know, the ability to send a, a, a couple people to a specific address to make sure that they had paid the correct amount of either food or taxes to the state. That wasn't something like any czar was ever capable of doing. Like the feudal system just isn't that good at it. Like the government's pretty disorganized because it relies on corrupt people to do a corrupt job. Yeah. All right. No, that, that makes sense. So I guess. So I guess we should get a little military, military strategies, tactics, I guess. Uh, so they've invaded in two spots. How are they going to, you know, I mean, I, I'll get into some stuff I've seen from like David Petraeus, which boggles my mind. He's even talking. Um, 
but uh, kind of what it what would their plan be if they're going to try to accomplish military invasion of, of Ukraine? Like, how is that going to work? From your, you know, ex- I would say pretty, pretty, be- pretty solidly expert opinion on this. As as a, a person who's thought about this a great deal, I, I would not characterize myself as an expert, but I would say I've thought about it a lot, and I think like yourself, you know has fought in uh, counterinsurgency. So I've seen it from one direction. It's really interesting to think about the other side of that. Like if you're fighting a defensive war. With a forward I, line of troops and everything. Yeah, yeah, right. That's right. Um, I think it, it looks like they're going to be moving, if they move, they're going to be moving primarily from the east uh, with the objective of securing um but overrunning the ukrainian military and securing whatever territory they can and they may be opportunistic in this it might be something where they say they're just going to secure donetsk and lugansk oblasts but if they are very successful they just kind of keep going to the west yeah and then i think their initial objective in the north will be kharkiv um i, I and this is all, this is all sort of you know you talk to ten people and you'll get many different answers. But um, Kharkiv was one of the cities where they really they thought it was pro-Russian. They think of it as a Russian. Putin thinks of it as a Russian city, and there was um, uh, a kind of I'm not sure rebellion is the right. It's not like a rebel. Like there was one of these like intelligence fostered uh, protest movements like they had in the east in the May in May June. Mm-hmm. Um, 2014, and they they had one in Kharkiv. They also had one in Odessa. And Kharkiv and Odessa both stomped the shit out of those things. They saw what was happening in the east. They'd seen what was happening in Crimea, and they just snuffed them out. Ukrainian militia, uh, together with um, law enforcement, just like they 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 stomped them, and and that was it. And then Kharkiv yeah. wasn't didn't go pro Russian, and Odessa didn't go pro Russian. But Putin thinks specifically of Kharkiv and Odessa as essentially Russian uh, cities. So I would expect something from the north to hit Kharkiv, and I would expect something from the south to hit Odessa or possibly Mykolaiv, uh, which under the USSR was a closed city, so it didn't exist on any maps. That's where they built their aircraft carriers. Okay. I mean... Well, having a giant map for every listener to look at, it's uh, it's interesting to me that they would try to kind of pinch from north and the south. Um, and then this raises the question because I, I don't know is are both of those cities on the east side of the Dnipro? Because to me, that's kind of the like logistical problem for the Russian military if they want to take Ukraine. Kharkiv is to the east of the Dnieper, and Odessa is not. Okay, but Odessa, these things are, if we're talking about logic, like the way you and I would sit down on a map and maybe plan out some type of, you know, offense or something, we would think about, you know, what we have in the, you know, what we have on our side, uh, you know, the number of tanks, the helicopter, what, what can we do? You know, yeah. honestly, like not like not the range of a tank is a hundred miles per day, but like feasibly, how far can we go in a day and make sure the fuel tanks are keeping up with us, all of this stuff. This is very emotional to Putin. Again, going by his speech and going by what he wrote, I don't think it's logical. I think he, for him, it's like it's emotional. It's almost spiritual in a sense. Like 
he believes that there are these places in Ukraine that yeah. belong to Russia. He's getting and, sentimental in his old age. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, that just, uh, so uh, I'm rereading the guns of August. So and this is just, it all happened to be coincidental. I'm like, great. This is fantastic timing to read this book. And it's like, Oh, great. Here's a horror story. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, uh, you know, talking about it strategically, I just, I just don't, I mean, so uh, Petraeus was talking about count. Oh, the Ukrainians are going to form an insurgency. And I'm just like, okay, listen, dude, like, I get it. You did one thing and now everyone's going to go to you for this kind of shit for the rest of your life. But us invading Iraq is not like the Russians invading Ukraine. Like you were saying, they, they speak. Most Ukrainians speak Russian. So that alone, I mean, that, that's a massive leap in like the ability to get people to empathize and communicate at a, such a simple level um, is a huge deal. Now that doesn't mean that the Ukrainians are going to love this any more than the Afghans loved having us around. But I mean, it's, it's, it's a massive change. Like you just can't compare in my opinion and in the invasion of Iraq and what Russia is doing in uh, Ukraine in terms of like its ability to operate a, a coin strategy for lack of a better way of putting it, because they're, they're just, they have more, they have more cultural ties. Like you're saying, there's families that often go back to it. So I just hearing Petraeus even compared to that, I'm like maybe on paper in terms of like 150,000 soldiers, it looks similar, but I just can't agree. I can't get on board with any comparison beyond that. I don't know what you think of it. There are, I have friends who are in Ukraine. I've got family members, uh, yeah. they're my wife, who are in Ukraine, who are staying to fight. So I, I, maybe insurgency isn't the right term, but you know, it's important to remember that Ukraine fought an insurgency against the USSR until 1953, officially and yeah. unofficially, sort of into the 1960s. That was supported by the CIA. You know, we used to sort of uh, airdrop stuff in back before radar was sophisticated. Um, and, you know, this time that was so, so my point there is that like, that was a very tenuous insurgency that was based in Ukraine's West, you know, the part, yeah. the part of Ukraine that had never belonged to Russia. That the survived the whole of the door and uh, have some really bitter, bitter roots to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, like they're standing up another decentralization initiative they've got going right now is this thing called the territorial defense forces, which is a lot like our national guards, which they've never had in the past. Ukraine has a national guard, the Ukrainian national guard, but it's uh, like their task organization is totally different. The Ukrainian national guard is like the state police or the police FBI cops, or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not. So they've never had a, military national guard because they never felt like delegating that type of potential authority over violence to the oblasts they do now they're standing that up it's at something they say it's at something like 70 percent strength their target was eighty thousands. i'm terrible at math i don't know what the math is on that how whatever 70 percent is of eighty thousand are like numbers of people who are training probably with like wooden like ak-47s don't have equipment don't have helmets, don't have body armor, probably don't even have uniforms. That's enough people to take part in an insurgency, essentially. But like, I, I, it is, it, it, I'm not even sure it'll ever get to that point because I don't think Russia, to your point earlier about the Dnieper 
you know, this, this massive river, the Russians suck at logistics. Like they were barely able to maintain a few planes in Syria and like a, a couple helicopter units. Those helicopter units and planes would spend like weeks at a time not flying because they didn't have any ammo because it was taking the Russians so long to get them into Syria. Like I, I would not want to like go up against a Russian unit with full ammo in the field. These are, you know, powerful fighters. They're you, you and I know, like they're, they're, they don't give a shit. They'll get drunk and they will charge you. Well, it's the, I mean, it's that combination, right? Like, so they're, their tactic, their tactic is maneuver by fire. So they lead with artillery. We lead with infantry. They lead with artillery. And that's a very different approach because they don't give a shit what they level. They don't right. care. It right. does not matter. <laughs> that's right. what they do by their doctrine. Um, so it, it's a, it, it is, I mean, it's a different game. It causes me great concerns about what they're going to do. And then, you know, so they get to the, I always say, oh, but I guess I'm wrong. You're not supposed to pronounce that. Oh, the, the, oh, at the end, I suppose it's silent or the, oh, the Omega looking thing at the end. Cause I don't know the Cyrillic alphabet, but I know Greek. So that's why I went with that. Um, oh, cool. Uh, so they get to the Dnieper. I mean, let's say they, they, that's their stop point for now, for a period of time. Um, what will, well, I mean, how Poland is not going to just sit this shit out, are they? I don't think they will. And one of the things, you know, I wrote a piece for the Daily Beast in uh, November, late November of last year, when this thing started kicking off, yeah. when it all looked like it was coming together. And the point that I tried to, one of the points that I tried to make in that piece was if the variables that you have in front of you are not the variables that exist as soon as a war starts. That's, and you know yeah. this, right? Because like every time you go on a mission, you're like, okay, we've got, we're going to objective Yankees up in the hill. And like you get to the hill and nothing's there. And so you go to the next objective and halfway there, you get ambushed. And then the rest of the, like, then you're spending two days in this, like, tiny village that was never part of the plan. The, the joys of mission creep. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, like, you know, and then you've got, you've got a really complicated, a very complicated Russian plan with multiple axes of advance. You know, not a simple thing to do. Like, one axis of advance, pretty complicated to do. Uh, and they've got multiple axes, lots of moving pieces. They're not great at logistics. So like, as soon as whatever starts, starts, every, something is going to slow down. You don't know where, I don't know if it's going to be in the East. I don't know if it's going to be in the South or the North or all of them or none of them, but something is going to happen that we can't in anticipate. If Russia moves very quickly and is extraordinarily successful, I think that's the, if, if everything goes better than they expect, that's the one scenario in which it's likely that Poland wouldn't intervene. But all Ukraine needs is one fucking, you know, Battle of Bunker Hill. They just need one place to hold and the, the battle, to, you know, the war to stretch out for like a month for, for you know, for Russia to lose you know, 50 or 100 helicopters or, or 100 or 200 tanks. And they will be looking and thinking better to fight this out in Ukraine than wait five or 10 years and have to fight this out in Poland because we know this used to be Russia too. Yeah, and that's the Poles' big worry, and that's a, a big concern for the U.S. because Poland is in NATO, right? So that's that's this goes back to reading the Guns of August and reading about how everybody went to war and how Russia invaded Germany first, and people often forget about that. Uh, but Moltke, for people for the historically minded, the German 
Ministry of War, all of his plans involved invading France. And even though Russia started first, they launched everything they had to go through Belgium, which is <laughs> how they got England wrapped up into the war, to attack France. Uh, so this whole machinery the concept that Russia is maybe trying to employ to enhance its logistical abilities um, has real ramifications in terms of its ability to draw other players into some kind of major uh, war. I mean, to, in the Eastern Europe. And I guess, you know, for me, the other thing I think of is like Ukraine gave up its nukes in 92. And that's looking like a bad decision. And Iran is now, if it was never, if it wasn't in their mind already, it, it, this has clarified their position on nuclear weapons forever. There is no way that they could ever make a conclusion to give up their nuclear program at this point. So I, I don't know what to tell anybody, but we, we did. I, I think this is the last question I have. I don't know what our guarantees were to the Ukrainians, but we did make some kind of promise to them in exchange for nuclear weapons going away. Is that right? That's right. It was the Budapest Memorandum. It was signed by us. The uh, I think the parties to it were us, Russia, the UK, and maybe Kazakhstan because they had a lot of nukes as yeah. well. They were the third um, nuclear power for like a long time. Something like that. Something yes. weird. Yeah. Because there's anyway. Yes. Yeah, so so um, uh, and what we the, the the agreement was that everybody would respect the sovereignty and the territorial boundaries of Ukraine and Kazakhstan as they existed in 1991. So that's already out the window. And one of the things that Putin was, uh, excuse me, that Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, was was saying he had like a really extraordinary speech in Munich. Um, and uh, a lot of people had written him off. It was probably one of the the best sort of um, uh, speeches the Ukrainian leader has ever given. To be to be frank, he told a lot of very uncomfortable truths. He said, "Look, this is uh, you know, if if the Budapest Memorandum doesn't mean anything, if 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 nobody else is abiding by it, then why should we abide by it?" And the the, the most important component of the Budapest Memorandum for Ukraine's purposes, well, obviously, you know, thirty some odd, you know, twenty five, thirty years ago, was that they gave up their nukes water under the bridge. But for the present time, it's that they agree to abide by the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. So what Zelensky was saying was, we have no reason to abide by this anymore. You know, Basically, nobody is respecting our sovereignty. Nobody is respecting our boundaries from 1991. UK and US say they did, but they haven't sort of done anything about Russia's disrespect for it. And Russia obviously doesn't think that any boundaries are uh, you know uh, of ours are, are sufficient for them, um, and, and, and something that I think has also gotten lost in the conversation that, that weighs on my mind a lot. Uh, a couple things. Firstly, North Korea developed its nuclear weapons in part with Ukrainian nuclear expertise yeah. that that had left Ukraine in the early 1990s. That's how they did that. It's very difficult to do. The only country that's ever independently developed nuclear technology was the United States of America. Everybody else has sort of had a few uh, nuclear... Some, some help somewhere from somebody, right? Exactly. So when, when Zelensky says we could develop nuclear weapons, I'm not sure he necessarily means we could round up all the old gang and bring them back together and do that. He might mean that those people are probably in their 70s or 80s by now. I don't know how feasible that is, 
But the thing that I'm certain Ukraine could do pretty lickety split quickly if it wanted to would be to develop some type of dirty bomb because they've got 15 nuclear reactors that they're cranking and they generate a ton of toxic waste. And there's, no, I mean, they, they also have, I've seen some unhinged parts of Twitter talk about, oh, Ukraine should just set these you know, nuclear facilities off like dirty bombs. And they could do that. Um, it would that's take catastrophic for, but everybody. that's catastrophic. That's like nuking yeah. yourself. I, mean, yeah, I don't that's... think that's actually feasible, <laughs> but when Zelensky says we to defend ourselves, we are not going to, we're going to back out of the nuclear non-proliferation treaty. What he does is he opens up the Pandora's box of what does that mean? You know, what does that yeah. mean? I mean, Iran's going to pursue its nuclear weapons, which means Saudi Arabia will pursue its nuclear weapons, which means Israel will declare its nuclear weapons. Why would on, they not? And on, I mean, you would be foolish not to. And on and on and on until everyone's got the, the big thing. And now you that's the re- this is the reason why everyone's like there is a nuclear non-proliferation treaty was because we were worried about that very scenario of like everyone having it, which means that it will another one will go off. <laughs> Guaranteed. Yeah. Uh, in anger. It will go off in anger. Um, you know, so I guess the question at this point is like, what should kind of the West, NATO, US response be at this point? You and I have interacted over Twitter over the idea of like, let's let Germany get back to what it does best. And like, <laughs> that's a that's a horrible idea in my mind, but what do I know anymore? No, I agree. I mean, the Germans are it one of the surprising things to me, we it, it, it's easy to talk about American foreign policy failures and American military failures because there are so many of them since the end of World War II uh, or bad ideas. One of the most extraordinary U.S. foreign policy slash military success stories since World War II has been the reinvention of Germany from an essentially militaristic and industrialized powerhouse into an essentially self-interested and diplomatically focused uh, industrial powerhouse. They make weapons and they're one of the world's largest exporters, uh, but they don't use them that much and they don't send them into wars. They really took a hard stand on that with Ukraine. I didn't agree. I don't agree with that. I think it's a mistake on their part, but so much so that they actually went, they ditched Nord Stream 2. I mean, those crazy bastards, they actually said, no, fuck it. Like, we know this is going to hurt us. We're shutting that down. Probably the bravest diplomatic move that's been made, I don't know, in the last 10 years. You know, they're like, this is going to hurt us politically, actually. Like, people will, yeah. get, will get cold. You know, people uh, are people going to be- hurt. Yeah. I mean, if he, yeah. No, I mean, and f- they build more efficiently than we do for everyone that wants to like get into it. So yeah. they don't need quite <laughs> as much as, you know, the average home. But yeah, they, um, they're, they're going to hurt. And um, I mean, I guess, you know, there, there's some stuff they might do to change that. I guess they can, you know, put a lot of their nuclear power plants back on the table over the next 10 years or so. But yeah. So, you know, to the, to the point of what should the West do? Um, I guess I believe just thinking about it for myself, if I were in the Russian military, the thing that would be the, the worst would be knowing Every time I kicked off, I, I kicked off some type of offensive operation that involved armor or helicopters, that there was an extremely good chance that at least one of them would get popped by a javelin or shot down by a stinger. Um, I don't think those things ha- you know, make too much of a difference in certain scenarios. 
um, you know, they're, they're not always useful. But in this particular scenario, Russia's got about 550 helicopters. Helicopters are far more useful for CCA than CAS is. And if, especially if they're going into a lot of towns and cities, like towns and cities are, are places where artillery and CAS is pretty ineffective. It's pretty ineffective for CAS because you can't see what the fuck is going on in the ground. It's all happening in buildings. It's ineffective for, for artillery because the only thing that artillery can really do with buildings is knock buildings Break down, them down. Yeah. which creates more cover for infantry if infantry are being concealed properly. Like the angles don't work. Um, so that leaves Russia with you know two things that it can use to subjugate cities, infantry, armored infantry, and CCA, you know, uh, helicopters, helicopter platforms. So if you're in a city and you've got, if you got 50 to 100 stingers and like 500 javelins in every, every big city, like <laughs> now, every time you want to take a city, you got to send the infantry in, man, I'll tell you, like, you better be one motivated fucking Russian soldier. Like it's, they're not paying people. They got, they got people at gunpoint at home, you know, cause otherwise I'm not going in there, man. I'm fucking calling up a grid coordinate. I'm like, yeah, we just, we just did it. Um, took light casualties. People got wounded. Uh, we're outside. So didn't make any progress. Sorry, man. No progress in Sector Bonnenberger. We have made no progress. <laughs> like, why would Why would you go in there? You're just gonna get fucking murked. I mean, so you're saying arm whatever is there for the Ukrainians? Like stingers, give them stingers, and javelins. Because for folks Crank that don't know, out. stingers were what we used against the Russians in Afghanistan in the '80s, and then javelins are a newer thing for tanks that are. I think the what is the what tank are they on now? The Russians T fourteen T fourteen. Yeah, the are the javelin is designed specifically to take that particular tank out at was it three k five kilometers. So I think three to four K. I yeah. think that's right. I haven't used one in forever. Um, but yeah, <laughs> um, they're built for that. Um, plus like just a sort of traditional artillery stuff that could happen. I mean, I'm curious what'll happen if, if the Russians, if the Russians can mount a significant logistical effort long enough to keep any of their prongs continually engaged with, you know, a competent enemy. I don't know. Um, I mean, that's the first question. That is the question, right? Like it goes back to your point about, um, the poles, like, and the reason the poles matter isn't just because they're NATO, it's because they have their own military with their own air power and can really jack up people at any level, even us, if we were like in the wrong place exposed <laughs> in the wrong time, like that, that's, that's the thing. Like you can't sleep on them. Uh, so for folks at home, like that would mean that the Russians, oh, Hey, you know, now our, you know, we have tank columns slowed down cause we have 20, 20 tanks out. Oh, okay. You know, we're in a, we're pulling security in a file, whatever. And, uh, we're going to be here for like three weeks. That's a target of opportunity for a military. If they know that like that you have a bunch of tanks on the ground and you, you may or may not be able to, to keep secure air, per, an air perimeter for them. Um, it's too easy to see the polls because they're just, I, I'm with uh, Bonenberger on this. The polls won't sit here and just let them, they won't. They've, they've made it very clear that they're not going to sit there. They're not Finland. They don't give a shit. They're not, you know, they're looking for some payback from, uh, you know, 1939 too. So 
it's a very different animal. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, history is really important to the Poles and they, they had their country taken them from them like three times. And you want to talk about a people who, you know, are living in a totally different paradigm from good old us of a with our two giant oceans it's fucking poland who's gotten it from both sides for the better part of 400 years and they're not going to have it I, I completely agree with you i think if the if anything goes wrong for the russians if it's slower if the weather turns i mean this is winter too that could be a fucking snowstorm battle of the bold style you know in a week i and- think they're smart enough to wait till the spring I, I knew you were telling me about the potential Putin and numerology. I'm like, there's no fucking way any general worth of shit would be like launch. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're not going to, you would never launch in the winter in Eastern Europe. You would wait till spring. You would be a dumbass to even, even Hitler managed to wait till the springtime. He just stuck it out too long. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, well, so the, you know, the other piece with that is one of the things you'll see a lot of, um, some people get like so far into the military analysis of it. And so far, I would say almost up their own asses that they look at the tactical innovations, thinking about what that would mean for them and how interesting it is. And they don't think about how useful it would actually be, what would be happening there. And a great example of this is this thing called the battalion tactical group, which is like the, uh, the 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 u.s military's current like this is like the smart guy version of hybrid war the btg it's like groundbreaking well it's like it's like rumsfeld and the super accurate bombs it's the same fucking thing it's like no dude this it's a fundamental misunderstanding of how this is all going to shake out yeah so you've got okay you've got tanks moving around with an anti-aircraft platform moving around with a very specialized artillery piece, the TOS-1, which is a very fearsome artillery piece, which has been around since the 1980s, has been involved in like three or four wars, never done anything spectacular. It's like blown up a couple of positions. It would be a terrible way to die. And I'm not saying I want any piece of a TOS-1. But so you're taking every one of those, like France World War II style, like putting a tank in every infantry company, like as direct support, how the fuck are they going to get resupplied? You have like resupply units, like moving around. Imagine like every single one of them is out in the boonies somewhere. Like, how are you, how are you even keeping track of where they are letting a lot, let alone getting more of this incredibly specialized and dangerous ammo to them. This is the thing with like the BTG where it's like, is it fearsome? Like, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't want to run into one of these things in the wilderness, but on the other hand, if you're in a city and they fire three or four rounds, that's a bad day for a few hundred people. And then you got a few thousand more people who are like, okay, well, we know they don't have that anymore. You know, let's no, get out I, the javelins. I mean, take like, out the tanks. Yeah. Dealing with, uh, yeah. I mean, Amer- Amer- we, we built a lot of expensive platforms to do very boutique uh, attack plans. And, um, uh, I, I'm skeptical about what that would ha- what would happen if we had to face like a conventional opponent with that kind of setup too. But you're right about people. I mean, the military leadership just tends to get their just get their head stuck up their ass about like, oh, I've I've got a new, I've innovated a new way. You know, we can invade Russia in the winter kind of mentality. Now we've <laughs> we've cracked the code, and um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to that. So. I guess kind of piggybacking off of that, because I do want to talk about the, the disgruntled veteran. Uh, I should say disgrunt- <laughs> the disgruntled veteran, the disappointed soldier. Sorry, I was channeling my uh, my inner thoughts about it. No. Um, 
I do want to talk about your book, but yeah, I mean, is there anything else you'd want out there about Ukraine? Because it sounds like if this really kicks off, you're heading over there to help evacuate people. Yeah. I mean, I have to, I've got family over there and um, hold on. Get it. Yeah. Sorry about that, buddy. Uh, that was a spider, uh, which I, I've got no issue with spiders. I just don't like them, you know, on my head. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just that the Ukrainians have been through like a ton of shit. And one of the things that that really attracted me to that place in the first place, uh, coming from America, where we have, you know, like the most salient war that we've been in in the last 20 years to most people is the culture war. Like most people don't even really know <laughs> that we were in Afghanistan or Iraq. You know, these are people who are, they're different. You know, the Ukrainian culture, the Eastern European culture is, is different from Western European or even American culture, but they share a lot of our values. They share, you know, a real, a sincere and passionate love for democracy, a thing they don't even fully understand yet. And it's like, it's like the exact opposite of Iraq or Afghanistan, where half of the time you're like walking around in a village with somebody who's like, you know, doesn't like what you represent. It's not that they don't know what democracy is. They like they know what it is. They have a they basic like idea. They still thing. don't. Yeah, they don't want it. They yeah. do not like it. They don't want it. You know, they're not idiots. They're not children. They're like, no, no, no. I know what that you're talking about. Everybody gets to vote and pick the person. Thanks. We've heard it. Next slide. And yeah. in Ukraine, they 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 actually want it. Most of them really actually want it, and they see it as a viable way to crack down on corruption in their country and 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 make the types of improvements they've seen when they visited Italy. Poland, Germany, the UK as like workers, as like home cleaners or hairs, things like that. And uh, and I really do think this is the only, you know, thing place as an American where I'm sort of like, you know, I guess you could say like something of an American exceptionalist. Like we have a good system. Like we came up with a pretty good system. We're not implementing it correctly. We've got like so many problems in our own country. But when a when a group of people actually wants it not bullshit like uh, a rock bullshit yeah like, not oh, no, manufacturing no, they're gonna, like they're gonna love it kind of a right. thing yeah garbage 100 like a lie we knew it was a lie in 2003 when people were trying to cram it down our throats it turned out to be a lie big surprise yeah but the ukrainians actually want it and it's like i just really want them to be able to have that i'd love for them to, to spend 100 years with their own country democratic and for the most part peaceful like not getting the shit invaded out of and shit, the shit invaded out of them by one of their neighbors, any one of their neighbors. Now, yeah. no, that's a good spot. So on the book, the disappointed soldier and other stories from war, my first, my favorite one was the disappointed soldier. Cause I was like, Oh, this is a, this is a good fantasy. This is total officer fanfic. I was like, Oh, I mean, you mean it all works out like the book says and everything, everything, it doesn't end happily, but it, like the guy basically accomplishes the goal. I dug the Afghan giant one, probably the most. That was pretty fun. I'm glad um, to hear that. Wait, but let me say about the disappointed soldier. The disappointed soldier is the officer. Yeah, that's that's the that's what makes it. It's it, but why he, he doesn't get his way? Yeah, well, he's, dis no, he's disappointed no, he, because he tries to do it this way, and it turns out he's fucking wrong. No, he's no, a smart he, guy. Okay, and, so so you wrote it, so I'm gonna argue yeah. with you a little about your own creation, which makes me an asshole. And I'm sorry. No, 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 not at all. Uh, my take on that is, so he goes through and he does all the coin things, right. And at the end, he's disappointed because the, the Afghan colonel hands him the head of the guys showing the war's cruelty. So he's disappointed, but it's kind of the fantasy of coin and everything working, right. That was my interpretation of it. So firstly, your interpretation of it, you know, as you know, as somebody who likes, enjoys reading 
the process of putting a story out there is that the, the, the meaning that is created is actually the meaning that's, you know, it's the reader and the story, I, I believe. So that's not an incorrect assessment at all. I mean, that's, that's how you read it. When I was writing it, I started out writing it that way. I did. I was thinking like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, and, and I put those, those characters down on the page, the, like the grunt, you know, the fucking silver star winner, yeah. like I'm going to fucking take it to Action the enemy. Jackson. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, and we all know that guy. And actually I've got, you know, a couple action Jacksons are some of my closest friends in the military. Yeah. In fact, uh, great dudes, you know, uh, and definitely the type of dude you'd want fighting against Russia. Um, but so the head of the guy is the guy that he was negotiating with in the village. Like his vision for coin was premised on the idea that he could make this guy not fight him. And he's disappointed because he sees that even though he did everything right, even though everything went well with coin, he's still holding this dude's head at the end of the day. Yes. The Afghans are the ones who killed it, not not killed him, not him. But it doesn't fucking matter if it's Action Jackson or the Afghans because it ends up in the same thing. You don't get peace that way. It's yeah. still just your fucking, you talked with the dude, you broke tea with them, you broke bread with them. And at the end of the day, he still tried to kill you. He's the disappointed he's soldier. A bad guy. Yeah. I mean, Captain America was another one I liked where the guy kept building the same thing. I was like, oh, yeah, that's that sounds familiar. Uh, that was all of us by the way that was everybody yeah no that that was like every like you're back like as someone that deployed there twice i was like oh yeah that that feels too accurate right there um dude wait 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 wait. quick quick pause that was inspired by the charboron valley that's that's a deco fucking inspiration right there that's charboron that's when i read it my first thought was is he talking about brad israel that's like a Brad Israel, <laughs> like this is Brad Israel in play, like Captain America Israel. I could totally see all of the connection in and like that. But yeah, for folks at home, we spent a lot of time trying to build the same shit in 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 the same place, and it didn't really work in any meaningful way. No, no, it did not work. And then I saw that the one seventy third was deployed there, and I was like, great, our our reputation now that we're all out precedes us at this point in time. Yeah. Yeah. There's like two guys I think that I know of that are even in Italy and neither of them are in anymore. And that's, yeah, that's it. So I don't know that whole era of the 173 from like, Oh, four to, Oh, well to 2010. It sounds like that was the the one that really was like the last era of that vintage, I suppose. Um, yeah, they're all some good out. years. Good years for that brigade, anyway. Although the, I guess the commander in 2010 ended up abandoning his wife and children and taking like the, his mistress or something on on dates, and you might have served with him for a period of time. I think it was that was the very end. I don't remember what the dude's name was, but I know exactly who you're talking about. But he was the brigade commander. Yeah, the brigade. I mean, like, you know, I mean, like, whatever. Who gives a shit? Who gives a shit? <laughs> Subscribe and tell your friends. My stuffies like this. They're gonna subscribe. <laughs> <laughs>